This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's October, spooky month. I've decided to share a new kind of series, kind of a twofer. Each episode will include a true crime case, as well as a paranormal story or a haunting, if you will. In the 1970s, people became fascinated with all things paranormal. Maybe it began earlier than that. The era of Charles Manson and his murderous family was the beginning of the end for the peace and love hippie era, and it ushered in a more cynical time for Americans. We began to pay attention to those dark forces of evil that were at work in the world, but which we perhaps naively didn't realize existed. After that time, many became fascinated with all things paranormal and supernatural. The book The Exorcist, written by William Peter Blatty, was published in 1971 and soon became a bestseller which spawned the blockbuster movie of the same name two years later. It tells the story of a demonic possession and attempted exorcism of a 12-year-old girl. It gripped the imagination of the public and inspired many other novels, films, and television shows about demons, hauntings, and the paranormal. In this episode, I'll share a story about a family who claimed their house was possessed by a malevolent supernatural force that drove them away in horror less than a month after moving into the property. Others would say that it was all a publicity stunt designed to cash in on the public's fascination with the paranormal. But what is not in dispute is that a horrific crime took place in the home prior to the family's claim of demonic possession. This is Chapter 2 of Haunted Homicide, The Amityville Horror House and the DeFeo Family Murders. The village of Amityville, located in Suffolk County, New York, consists of a mere two and a half square miles and is home to less than 10,000 residents. It sits on Long Island's Great South Bay. Almost a half a mile of its total area is made up of waterways, and many homes are waterfront properties that include boat docks. One such home, located at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, went on the market and was purchased in December 1975 by George and Kathleen, or Kathy, Lutz. The house, a 3,600-square-foot, five-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath, Dutch colonial-style home, abutted the Amity River and included a full basement, pool, large boathouse, and dock. George Lutz, an ex-Marine, had married Kathleen Connors Quarantino, a divorced mother of three, the previous summer. They decided to purchase a home together in order for the recently blended family to have a fresh start. They couldn't believe their luck when they discovered the beautiful home was on the market for the bargain price of $80,000. The property's value was estimated at between $140,000 and $150,000, but while touring the property with the real estate agent, they discovered why the price was so low. Just like at the Fox Hollow Farm property, a story I shared with you last time, this property also had a dark past. In 1974, just a year before the Lutzes saw the property, the Amityville home was the scene of a series of brutal murders. George and Kathy didn't hesitate long after learning this fact before they decided to purchase the home anyway. 
they couldn't pass up the deal to own such a gorgeous property. It even came with many of the furnishings that had been left behind after the tragedy. Still, they were thrilled to become the home's new owners. But immediately after moving into the house, strange things began to occur. Supernatural sights, sounds, and smells started to be experienced by the family, beginning on the first day they moved in, and never let up. Before long, a horror like they never knew existed was visited upon them while living at 112 Ocean Avenue. 28 days later, the family fled their home in terror, leaving behind all their possessions, never to return again. Not long afterwards, George and Kathy contacted a person who had knowledge of the terrible events that occurred in the home. They began to wonder if the dark forces they had experienced could have contributed to that horrific crime. Just after 6 p.m. on Wednesday, November 14, 1974, Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., age 23, came bursting into Henry's Bar in Amityville. He'd just left the bar a few minutes earlier after hanging out with friends to return to his home located just up the road. Now he seemed frantic, calling out to his friend Bob Kelsky. Bob, you gotta help me. Someone shot my mother and father. Bob and another friend, Joey Yeswit, and a few other bar patrons piled into Butch's car and sped off towards 112 Ocean Avenue. When they arrived, Bob Kelsky raced upstairs to the master bedroom. There, he found 43-year-old Ron DeFeo Sr. and 42-year-old Louise DeFeo dead in their beds. They had both been shot in the back. Joey Yeswit used the DeFeo's telephone in the kitchen to call the police. Butch stayed outside on the front lawn, sobbing. The first officer arrived and went upstairs to find the dead couple. As he crossed the hallway to return to the stairs, he looked into another bedroom on the opposite side of the landing. There he found two more bodies. Mark DeFeo, age 12, and John DeFeo, age 9, had also been shot and were lying face down in their twin beds. Next to Mark's bed was the wheelchair he'd been using since suffering a recent football injury that had injured his hip. The officer returned to question Butch DeFeo and call more officers to the scene of the multiple homicide. At this time, Butch told the officer that he also had two sisters. Now, two officers returned upstairs and found 13-year-old Allison DeFeo and 18-year-old Don DeFeo in their bedrooms. Both were also found dead, lying in their beds. They had each been shot once in the face. Six members of the DeFeo family had been murdered. The only surviving member of the household was Ron DeFeo Jr. As homicide investigators arrived, they questioned DeFeo. Who could have done such a thing, they asked him. He immediately told the cops that he suspected a man named Louis Fellini. Fellini was an alleged hitman connected to the mob. DeFeo said that Fellini had a beef with Ron Sr. regarding some business deal. The cops were prone to believe this story, since Ron Sr. was a well-to-do car dealer in Long Island. It was entirely possible, they thought, that he may have had some dealing with the mafia that had gone sour. To be on the safe side, they decided that the surviving DeFeo son should be given police protection. Obviously, he wouldn't be staying at the murder house while the investigation was ongoing. But as the investigation began, 
many who knew Ronnie, or Butch, DeFeo, told the cops that their number one suspect would be Butch himself. He was the spoiled son of a rich man, they said, and one that had exhibited an air of entitlement, had a short fuse as well as a drug problem, and possessed an extensive collection of firearms. Butch loved guns, neighbors and acquaintances told cops. Also, he was a little crazy. And to wrap everything up in a nice tidy bow, Ron Jr. and Ron Sr. had been known to get into violent arguments. The investigators now decided to take a closer look into the DeFeo family. Ron DeFeo Sr. had been a longtime employee of a Brooklyn Buick dealership owned by his father-in-law. He had done well financially and purchased the large home located on the Amity River for his family, which now included five children, three boys, Ron Jr., Mark, and John, and two girls, Dawn and Allison. He had a sign created for the front of the home with the name they'd chosen painted in bold letters, High Hopes. After the murders, rumors swirled in the media that Ron Sr. was a violent, abusive man. It was said that he hit his wife and got into fistfights with his oldest son, Ronnie. He was also described as very controlling, ruling his home with an iron fist and causing at least his two oldest children, Ron Jr., 23, and 18-year-old Don, to rebel. However, some of the DeFeo neighbors dispute this. They say that Ron Sr. was a hardworking man devoted to his family and loyal to his wife. They never saw him as much as raise his voice, they would later report. They also said that the DeFeos were devout Catholics. Ron Sr. may have been considered a little strict as a parent, but was far from abusive. Of course, what goes on in a family behind closed doors is often unseen by the outside world. Still, one neighborhood boy, a friend of the DeFeo children named Pat O'Reilly, would insist that Mr. DeFeo was a loving father. O'Reilly said he often played in the DeFeo home and never saw Mr. DeFeo raise his voice or become angry with his children. He did expect his children to be polite and show respect to adults, but the children never received anything beyond a typical scolding. Other church members and neighbors would describe Mrs. DeFeo as a nurturing and loving mother who doted on her children. The family attended church together and adhered to the tenets of the Roman Catholic faith. But Ron Jr., or Butch, as most everyone knew him, was a wild child. Whether this was just how he was wired, or was a response to his allegedly controlling and abusive father, is uncertain. But either way, his parents had trouble controlling his behavior, which became worse as he reached adolescence. They sought out the help of a psychiatrist for their eldest son, but he refused to participate in therapy sessions other than to blame his problems on others. Butch began drinking and using drugs in his teens. He cared little about doing well in school and began stealing from strangers and family alike. His parents tried using money and material possessions to motivate their son towards better behavior. He was given an expensive speedboat at the age of 14. They also gave him money, figuring that if he didn't feel the need to steal, he would stop. This overindulgence only served to make Butch more spoiled and entitled. The DeFeo sent their children to Catholic school, and when Butch was 17, he was kicked out of his school for his poor grades and even worse behavior. His drug use escalated, and by his late teens, he was using LSD, speed, and even heroin. 
other Amityville teens had stories of Butch's odd and violent behavior. He had begun collecting firearms as a teen and was reckless with these weapons. A boy he'd been friends with for years accompanied him on a group hunting trip. Out of the blue, Butch pointed a loaded rifle at him, just inches from his face. The boy ran off, and Butch calmly lowered the weapon. Later, he would ask the boy why he had left so suddenly, seemingly without any awareness of how terrified the boy was at being menaced with a loaded weapon. At age 18, and without completing high school, he was given a job working with his father at the Buick dealership. His job, like most other things, Butch DeFeo didn't take too seriously. His father bought him a car to travel to work in, and he was given a cash payout each week, whether or not he worked his shift. Butch DeFeo was well known to local narcotics officers. He was already on probation for possession of narcotics and had also been charged with the theft of a $1,700 outboard motor just two months before the murders. Investigators also discovered that two weeks before the murders, Butch DeFeo was given the assignment of depositing the day's receipts from the car dealership. He was given $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks to take to the bank. Instead, he decided to keep the money by claiming he was robbed on his way to the bank. He returned from the errand two hours later and made the false claim. Police were called, and when they questioned him for more details, such as the description of the suspect, he became angry and accused the officers of calling him a liar. He became so agitated that he started pounding on the hood of one of the cars on the lot. Ron Sr. wasn't fooled. He suspected his son of stealing the money right away. The police left after taking his statement, but called him a short time later, asking him to come to the station to look at some mugshots. The appointment at the police station was scheduled for a Friday, five days before the murders, but Butch didn't show. Ron Sr. received a call from a detective about the missing appointment, and he and his son got into a shouting match that ended with Butch peeling off the lot in his car. The DeFeo's housekeeper would later report that Mrs. DeFeo made the comment to her several times that she was afraid something terrible was going to happen to the family. The level of tension in the home just before the murders was increasing by the day. On the day after the murders, detectives were still sweeping the crime scene for any evidence when they came upon two empty rifle boxes in Butch DeFeo's bedroom. They were for Marlin rifles, a 22 and a 35 caliber model. They had already determined that all six victims had been shot with a 35 caliber rifle. They had also interviewed DeFeo's friend, Bob Kelsky, who'd spilt the beans about the fake robbery. Now detectives brought DeFeo back in for another interview. They asked him about the timeline of events leading up to finding his murdered family members. He'd said he'd gotten up early to go to work and had heard his brother in the bathroom after 4 a.m. He'd arrived at work at 6 a.m. and began calling home later that morning when his father didn't show up at work as scheduled. He left work at noon, stopped at his friend Bob Kelsky's house, and then arrived at his girlfriend Sherry Klein's house around 1.30 p.m. At Sherry's, he called home again, but still there was no answer. He'd passed by his house, he explained, but didn't stop, as he'd forgotten his house key. He found it odd that the family car was parked in the driveway, but no one was answering the phone.
He then took Sherry shopping at a mall in Massapequa. After dropping her home, he stopped at Bobby's again. He mentioned to Bob that no one was answering the phone at his house, and he was locked out. He made plans to meet Bob later at Henry's bar. He spent the rest of the day visiting friends. He also admitted that he'd done some heroin and had some drinks. He arrived at Henry's bar around 6 p.m., and when the bar patrons, including Bob Kelsky, were questioned, they told detectives that he didn't stay long. He was still complaining of being unable to reach his family. He told Bob he was going to go to the house and was going to have to break in. Bob told the cops he didn't know why he was going on and on about it. Just do what you gotta do, he said he finally told him. DeFeo left the bar and returned just minutes later with the news that his parents had been killed. But although DeFeo had told the cops that he'd been home all night and left for work after 4 a.m., the medical examiner pegged the time of the murders at between 2 and 4 a.m. DeFeo had admitted to being home at that time, so his alibi was shot. They also sprang the news on him that they knew he owned a 35 caliber rifle, the type of weapon used in the murders. Backed into a corner, DeFeo tried to spin a different story. He still pointed the finger at the hitman Fellini, but now he said he'd been awoken at 3 a.m. with a gun pointed in his face. Fellini and another man, who he could not name or describe, forced him to accompany them as they murdered each one of his family members. He admitted to having helped get rid of evidence at the crime scene. They kept pressing him for answers as to why Fellini would kill his entire family but let him live. It didn't make sense, and they kept insisting that there must be more to the story. DeFeo began to crack. It didn't happen that way, did it? Detective Dennis Rafferty pressed. Butch, they were never there, were they? DeFeo finally admitted. No, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. The trial began in October 1974. DeFeo's defense, led by William Weber, decided their best bet was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. This would be an uphill battle, since DeFeo had cooperated after giving his confession and led detectives to where he had disposed of the murder weapon. It was positively matched to the murders. DeFeo did his best to appear crazy to the jury. Shown a picture of his mother dead in her bed, he was asked to identify her. He insisted that it was not his mother. I've never seen that person before in my life, he answered. Shown a picture of his father, he then admitted that he'd killed him and the rest of the family in self-defense. He said that he believed if he didn't kill them, they were all going to kill him. He further stated, When I've got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. He told the prosecutor under cross-examination that he'd felt good, very good, after killing his family. Finally tired of answering his questions, he threatened the attorney's life in open court. If I had any sense, which I don't, he said angrily, I'd come down there and kill you now. The prosecutor's expert witness, Dr. Harold Zolan, told the court that his assessment of the defendant indicated that DeFeo's antisocial personality and self-centeredness led to his decision to kill his family, most likely to be the sole heir to the family inheritance. On November 21, 1975, 
Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. He was subsequently sentenced to 25 years to life for each count. At that time, because the murders were classified as one continuous act, the six sentences were to be served concurrently, making him eligible for parole beginning in 1999. George and Kathy Lutz moved into their new home on December 18, 1975, one year and one month after the DeFeo family was murdered in their beds, and just weeks after Ronald DeFeo was sentenced to prison. Moving into the home at 112 Ocean Avenue, along with the newlyweds George and Kathy, were Kathy's three children from a previous marriage, Daniel, age 9, Christopher, age 7, and Melissa, called Missy, age 5. They also brought along their dog, a Labrador mix named Harry. Besides purchasing the waterfront home for the bargain basement price of $80,000, they also purchased most of the furniture that had belonged to the DeFeos for an additional $400. George Lutz was most excited about the built-in dock and the boathouse on the property. He'd always wanted a boat and purchased one straight away, even though it was still the middle of winter. It was only a week before Christmas and Kathy and George were eager to get settled and spend their first holiday in their new home. The kids helped to bring in the things they could carry and began unpacking. Missy would have her own room, and the boys would occupy another. George and Kathy would take the master bedroom, and the two remaining rooms were designated as a playroom and a sewing room. But on the very first day, the family noticed some strange things about the house. Danny ran up to the third floor and entered the playroom. This room had been formerly occupied by the two young DeFeo brothers, John and Mark. Entering, he noticed hundreds of flies swarming the room. He began killing as many flies as possible. He ran downstairs to tell his mother, but when she returned with him, all the flies, including the ones he'd killed, were gone. A friend of George Lutz's, who was Catholic, found out about the house's history and advised him to have the house blessed by a priest. George was a non-practicing Methodist, and Kathy, while raised Catholic, was also not actively practicing the faith. Even so, they thought it might be a good idea. What could it hurt? They called the nearby diocese, and a local priest named Father Ray came that first day to perform the house blessing. He arrived and began moving room to room, saying prayers and sprinkling holy water. He first noticed a change in temperature in certain areas of the home. It felt like walking into and through a cold spot, which felt significantly colder than the rest of the house. One of these spots was located on the ground floor near the staircase. Another was just outside the bathroom on the second floor. And the third was located in Danny's room. For their entire stay at the house, the cold spots would remain. But most disturbing for the priest was an incident that occurred while he was blessing the sewing room. Very clearly, Father Ray heard a disembodied voice say, Get out. He felt a cold chill and began to feel nauseous. He spoke briefly to Kathy Lutz and quickly left the home. Over the next 28 days, the Lutz family experienced what they would describe as nonstop paranormal activity inside 112 Ocean Avenue. First, it was sounds creaking, rattling, and footsteps above them when no one was upstairs. The sounds became louder and more violent over time, 
doors banging open and closed. Danny recalls watching the garage door behind the house bang open and close repeatedly. He and George would go and lock the doors and double-check that they were shut, and within minutes, it would begin again. Kathy Lutz began to feel the presence of someone in the room when she was alone. She felt it was a woman. Sometimes, she could feel someone touch her. She began to hear a woman scream at random times of the day and night. Spots came up on the carpet, black marks. She'd clean them thoroughly, but they would reappear again within minutes. The water in the toilet bowls turned black, and the flies continued to return. There would be hundreds of them in certain areas of the house. The sewing room was the worst for this occurrence. The odd thing was that this was in the dead of winter, and the windows were closed. They didn't like to think about it, but they wondered if the flies might be a residual left over from the multiple dead bodies discovered in the home just one year earlier. An ungodly stench would present itself out of the blue. Once while in the playroom, Danny encountered the terrible smell once again. Trying to clean it out, he opened the window. While his hands were resting on the windowsill, the window unexpectedly and with great force slammed down on them. Shocked and in pain, he cried out. George and Kathy had to push with all their might to move the window and release the boy. After they did so, they could see that the fingers on both hands were crushed and one knuckle looked completely shattered. In a recent documentary titled My Amityville Horror, Danny, as an adult, describes what happened next. And my mom starts fishing for ice and she wants to make phone calls and get ice and do all of these things. In, in her turning around to get a rag to put the ice cubes in, to put in my hand as we're sitting in the kitchen, the side door opened very slowly and we both stopped what we were doing to pay attention and there was nobody there. Wow, I hate doing this. I fucking hate doing this. Why are you making me do this, dude? I'm just, I just got to spit this out, all right? A fucking spirit comes into the house, into the room, through the door, bumps into my mother, walks through my hands, like this, that are hanging off the table, knocks the peanut butter and jelly knife down onto the floor, and sits down in this spot here. We're doing this, and she's wrapping my hands, and in that three seconds it took to look back, it was gone. So as I'm sitting there, and my mother flips over my hands, and she's looking back, and she's like, wow, because we're talking skin on skin here, and uh, my hands swell up to the size of... Uh, a child's baseball glove. Five times their normal size. And in one second, my hand went back to normal, except for this pinky. So that pinky, let's see, it's still... That's it's permanent still, from... That's, it's that's, still bent. Did they take yeah. you to the doctor? No. The family was also experiencing personality changes. While once active and very social... Kathy Lutz found herself never wanting to leave the house. Even while all the terrifying activity was taking place, she felt like she couldn't leave the house and even discontinued regular activities like shopping for groceries. Meanwhile, George Lutz was going through a different set of changes. 
He found himself waking every night at 3.15 in the morning precisely. He couldn't fall back asleep and would wander around the house and grounds. He often found the boathouse doors open, even though he made sure he secured them every night. He stopped taking care of his appearance. He had always been careful with his appearance, but now his hair and beard became shaggy. He began drinking more. He stopped eating and lost a significant amount of weight. He took to frequenting a bar in the village, the same bar that Ron DeFeo Jr. had visited regularly. The bar patrons remarked to each other how much George Lutz reminded them of Ron DeFeo, with long hair and beards and a brooding look. Incidentally, the 3.15 a.m. awaking time he was experiencing became significant when it was discovered to be the time the DeFeos were murdered. George Lutz became more irritable and short-tempered with his family. He also constantly felt cold. He would build raging fires in the fireplace and turn up the heat in the house, but he could not get warm. Five-year-old Missy began spending a lot of time alone in her room. Her mother often heard her speaking out loud to someone and finally asked her who she was talking to. Missy explained that it was her friend Jody. She drew a picture of Jody. It was a picture of a pig with red eyes. Missy insisted that Jody was in her room and that she talked to her. Of course, at first, her mother believed Missy was describing an imaginary friend, a common occurrence among very young children. But then they had actual sightings of a pig-like figure. Danny recalls being outside and looking up to see his sister Missy standing in her bedroom window. Behind her stood a demonic-looking pig with glowing red eyes. He called to George and pointed up to it. George also saw the figure. They both ran into the house and up the stairs. When they entered Missy's room, she was fast asleep in her bed. However, a rocking chair in her room was moving back and forth, back and forth of its own volition, and continued to do so for at least 20 minutes. Their dog Harry was also on alert, even when there was no visible threat present. He would alert on sounds and begin barking. No one else could see or hear what he was barking at, but sometimes he became extremely agitated. He would not go near one small room found in the basement that they called the Red Room, as the walls were all painted bright red. The Lutzes felt they might be going crazy, but even visitors to the home heard and experienced some of these events. The Lutzes tried on their own to drive out whatever might be causing the activity. On January 8th, they brought out a silver crucifix and held it while reciting the Lord's Prayer throughout the house. After that, the activity grew worse. Violent pounding and shaking began on the floors and walls throughout the house at random times. It felt as if the walls would crumble down around them. They became terrified for their safety and the safety of their children. On the night of January 13th, the Lutzes say the activity reached its greatest intensity. It lasted all night, and the noise, the smells, and the feeling of terror was relentless. They did not give specifics about what exactly transpired that evening, saying that it was, quote, too terrifying to talk about, unquote. Early the next morning, they ran from the house with their children and drove away, never to return again. They left behind all of their possessions, including George's beloved boat. 
The house and its contents would later be sold at auction. After leaving their home in terror, George and Kathy Lutz began trying to make sense of what had happened to them. They started to look into the DeFeo murders, wondering if this event was connected to the paranormal activity that they had experienced. They read accounts of Ronald DeFeo's crime and trial, and were particularly interested in his insanity defense. They decided to contact his defense attorney, William Weber, to ask some questions. In late January 1976, William Weber and the Lutzes met in person. They told the attorney about their terrifying experiences at 112 Ocean Avenue and asked him a question. Did he think that his client, Ronald DeFeo Jr., might have been similarly affected by something in the home? And did he think it was possible that it had driven him mad and led him to kill his family? Weber was intrigued by their story. He had long felt that there was something truly off about DeFeo, and now he wondered if this was the key to understanding his crime. Or maybe he just thought it might make a compelling argument for his client's upcoming appeal. Who knows? In either case, Weber told the Lutzes that he thought there might be some connection between the possession of the home and the murders. He proposed that they should investigate further, and if they found a connection, that they should write a book about the murders and the paranormal activity in the home. The Lutzes would later say that they felt that perhaps Ron DeFeo was a victim of the home as well, and if so, a new trial should be considered. Weber, of course, was also interested in using the Lutzes' experience to reintroduce the insanity defense on appeal of DeFeo's sentence. The following month, William Weber, along with George and Kathy Lutz, held a press conference to share their experience with the public and lay out the case for the appeal. Watching that day was a reporter for Channel 5 News, Laura DiDeo. She'd been working on a series investigating cases of paranormal activity and approached Weber about a television special. Together, they planned to film an investigation inside the Amityville house to see if they could find any proof of the Lutz's claims of supernatural activity. In March, Laura DiDeo and anchor person Marvin Scott, along with their film crew, arrived to spend a night in the Amityville house. They had also enlisted famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren to join them. The Warrens had been investigating paranormal activity for decades, having founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. Some of their most famous cases included investigations into the possessed Raggedy Ann doll known as Annabelle in 1968 and the Enfield poltergeist haunting. While Marvin Scott would end the night saying he didn't feel or see anything supernatural during his time there, the Warrens would be convinced that the home was possessed by a dark force. But there were a couple of strange incidents that evening while the team was present in the home. The camera person, a man in his 40s, began experiencing chest pains soon after arriving at the house. He had to be rushed to the hospital. The news team had also set up a camera on a tripod and placed it on the second floor, facing the doors to three rooms where much of the paranormal activity had allegedly taken place. It was set to automatically take a photo every few minutes. The crew reported seeing nothing out of the ordinary on the second floor that evening, but when the photos were developed, in one of them, there was a clear picture of a young boy looking out of one of the bedroom doors. Reporter Laura DiDeo, who was present the entire evening, 
adamantly states that she's certain there were no children in the house that night. Who was this boy? Could it be one of the murdered DeFeo boys? The boy appears to be about eight or nine years old, has light-colored hair, and his eyes glow in the flash of the camera as he stares into the dark hallway. The Lutzes did not participate in the investigation. They wanted nothing to do with the home, and in May of 1976, they moved to California. There they were contacted by writer Jay Anson, who was also interested in writing a book about their experiences. They didn't collaborate on the book, but they did allow him to record interviews with them to use as the basis for his book that would be titled The Amityville Horror, A True Story, which was published in September 1977. They would later say that Anson took parts of their account and exaggerated them to create a more sensational story. William Weber, who'd been cut out of the book deal he'd once proposed to the Lutzes, still wanted to use their experience as a defense for his client, Ronald DeFeo. To bolster his case, he contacted Hans Holzer, a paranormal researcher and author who had investigated many reported haunted places around the world. Holzer enlisted deep trance mediums to communicate with spirits. This time, he brought along medium Ethel Johnson Myers to the Amityville House investigation. Together, they concluded that the house was being possessed by the spirit of a Native American of the Shinnecock tribe who was angry that the home was built on a sacred burial ground. Weber was unable to confirm the historical accuracy of this claim. Some who believed in the supernatural claims pointed to the fact that although sound tests were done on the 35 caliber Marlin rifle, which determined that the sound of the gunshots would have carried for a full block, it seemed that no member of the family had been awakened by the gun blasts on the night of the murders. All the members of the DeFeo family were found still tucked into their beds, some with their covers drawn over them. Almost all of them were lying on their stomachs, as if they hadn't stirred at all. However, crime scene reports suggest that Mrs. DeFeo had turned towards the shooter, but had not had much time to react before she was shot in the back twice. But others are convinced that the boys in the next room or their sisters across the hall should have been up and out of their beds after the first blast. However, Mark, it was pointed out, had an injured hip and couldn't have moved very quickly. One possible theory for the position of John's body is that while the gun was held on him, he was ordered by Ron Jr. to turn onto his stomach and not move. Perhaps he issued this order because he didn't want to look his little brother in the face while he shot him. The terrified child would have most likely done anything he was told, shocked and horrified at seeing his crazy older brother pointing a rifle at his head. Thirteen-year-old Allison had definitely moved towards the shooter, investigators determined, perhaps trying to jump out of bed. She'd not had enough time, it seems, and was shot as soon as DeFeo entered the room. He then covered her with the blanket after she fell back into the bed. But 18-year-old Don's murder is the most discussed by those who believe demonic forces helped DeFeo to shoot his family by putting them into a trance-like state. It was determined by toxicology reports that no drugs had been administered to explain why Don had not reacted to her entire family's murder. Her bedroom was also on the second floor and close to the others. One explanation may be that Don was not home while the rest of the family was killed. Don was a headstrong girl and also a bit rebellious and may have gone out 
or even snuck out for the evening after her parents and siblings were asleep. If so, she may have returned in the early hours of the morning and slipped into bed, after which time DeFeo then shot her last. William Weber attempted to use the demonic possession angle to defend his client, but was unsuccessful, in large part due to the fact that Ron DeFeo kept changing his story. In the first years of his incarceration, he confessed to killing his family to fellow inmates, the court, and even Hans Holzer. But in between these confessions, he also told others that an acquaintance came to his house and committed the murders, that an unknown assailant was responsible, that a neighbor snuck in and committed the murders, and that Bobby Kelsky killed his family. His appeals were rejected by the court. In September 1977, J. Anson's book, the Amityville Horror, A True Story, was published. It became an instant bestseller. George and Kathy Lutz went on a media tour to promote it and tell their story. In 1979, the film The Amityville Horror was released. James Brolin and Margot Kidder played George and Kathy Lutz. The movie was a hit, earning over $46 million in the U.S. upon its release and becoming one of the highest-grossing independent films of all time. But the success of the book and film made many doubt the truthfulness of the Lutz's account, and they were excoriated in the press as frauds and hoaxers. In response, they submitted to a polygraph examination, which they both passed. Reporter Laura Dedeo had investigated their claims early on and has since confirmed several details of their story. She spoke to Father Ray, who confirmed the account of his experience while blessing the house the first day the Lutzes moved in. However, when she contacted the diocese, they denied it had happened. New owners of 112 Ocean Avenue, who moved in a year after the Lutzes fled, told the press that they had never experienced anything supernatural while living in the home. They went on record to say that they believed the Lutzes had made up the entire story. They also mentioned that they were sick and tired of people congregating in front of their home, taking pictures and trying to get a glimpse inside the infamous Amityville Horror House. This alone could have been a motivation to deny that there was any truth to the Lutz's story. But, believers say, there is possibly one other explanation for the supernatural activity in the Lutz's home. According to Danny Lutz, who was nine at the time he lived in the house, life for their family started out far from peaceful and serene even before they moved into the murder house. George Lutz was his stepfather, and according to Danny, he was a controlling and abusive man, prone to using violence to exert his dominance over his three stepchildren. Danny, being the oldest, received the brunt of this violence. Danny also admits he was an angry little boy. He hated his stepfather and felt he'd ruin their lives by marrying his mother. For one thing, Danny says George told Kathy that he would only marry her if her ex-husband would agree to allow him to legally adopt her children. Danny believed that this was George's way of controlling Kathy and having complete dominance over the family. Kathy was able to persuade the children's father to sign over his rights. Danny had adored his father and now became deeply unhappy and resentful towards George Lutz, who he vowed to never call dad. Danny also revealed that George Lutz had been immersed in New Age spiritual practices and the occult before they moved to Amityville. In interviews, George denied that he had any knowledge of the paranormal before experiencing the events in the Amityville home. Danny's account is outlined in the 2013 documentary My Amityville Horror, 
48 years old at the time of the filming, Danny says that the home was dominated by his controlling, angry, abusive stepfather who was dabbling in dark spiritual practices. In addition, Danny was a white-hot ball of anger who hated George Lutz and rebelled against his authority. All this negative tense energy, coupled with the residual evil that was created by Ron DeFeo and his murderous act, may have caused a vortex of demonic evil that manifested itself in violent paranormal activity during those 28 days the Lutz family resided in the home. It's an intriguing theory. Still, there are those who believe that the Lutzes purchased the house for the sole purpose of perpetrating a hoax in order to cash in on its notoriety. But the Lutzes had no way of knowing what kind of phenomenon their story would become. There was no way to predict that their story would become a book, much less a bestseller, or that it would go on to become a hit movie that raked in millions at the box office. Before any of that happened, they sunk their life savings into their new home. And when they fled the home, they left everything behind. Records show that they never retrieved any of their possessions, including George's boat. They were too afraid to ever step foot inside the house again, and everything was auctioned off by the county. What is more likely is that whether the house was actually possessed by evil or not, the Lutzes believed it was, and also believed they were fleeing for their lives. They did not expect their story to receive the attention that it did, but once it did, they embraced their newfound fame and fortune. Who wouldn't? Although fortune's not quite the right word. I discovered that George and Kathy Lutz received a total of $300,000 for the rights to their story. Not a bad day's pay, but it certainly didn't make them millionaires. Kathy Lutz died in 2004 at the age of 57 from emphysema. She and George divorced in 1988 after having two daughters together. George Lutz died two years later in Las Vegas at the age of 59. His cause of death is listed as cardiac disease. Danny Lutz ran away from home at the age of 15. He lived in the desert and survived from day to day. He felt he was still haunted by whatever entity had been inhabiting the Amityville house. It took him many years to shake it and to feel like he was back in control of his mind and his body. He loved his mom and felt she was controlled by George. He said when he heard he'd died, he felt happy. He now works as a driver for UPS on Long Island. His younger brother and sister don't talk about their past or give interviews about their experiences in Amityville. Ron DeFeo is still in prison. He has come up repeatedly for parole, but has never expressed remorse for killing his parents and siblings, and has been denied a release date each time. In 1986, he gave an interview to Newsday where he stated that Dawn shot and killed her father, and then she was killed by her mother. His mother, he claimed, then killed the other children. DeFeo says when he returned home and discovered what had happened, he killed his mother in a rage. In 1992, he changed his story once again when he came before the parole board. He now said that Dawn killed everyone and he, discovering this, killed her to avenge his family. He continued to repeat this story until his 2007 parole board hearing. He now says that he cannot recall the events of that night and has no explanations for the murder. There have been five owners since the Lutzes left 112 Ocean Avenue. The address has been changed and the house remodeled. 
the two iconic quarter windows at the top of the home are now gone, but the curious still manage to find it. This alone has caused many of its owners to sell and move away. The house was last sold in March of 2017 for $605,000. Its market value is currently listed at $853,000. No owners of the home after the Lutzes have ever reported paranormal activity of any kind. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Next time, we'll travel across the pond, as they say. Do they say that? To learn about some historical British crimes and hauntings. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. I think you'll love it. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.